floated in front, and Holtby able to scoop that one along after the stop. And turned over again. Hornquist back in. Score! Patrick Hornquist off a turnover, and it's 2 nothing. I don't know if I was going to say this or one last thing or what, but I think last time we did a show, I was going through The Sopranos again. Okay. So when that ended, I started going through The Wire again. Yeah. And The Wire just fucks you up. Because <laughs> when you watch like the first three seasons, even, it's kind of this just like gang-banging show in a way, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like... I still have never watched it's, it. There's drugs and right. There's people chasing drugs and there's a tragedy here and there. You know, a street guy gets killed or a cop gets shot or whatever. I'm trying to be vague, but stuff you'd assume would happen on right. the show. Yeah, you know. But then the fourth season comes and one of the main focuses is the schools, and it's about it becomes about children. And anytime I rewatch it and I get to that point, I always think about bailing out. Because to skip in a season five. Well, th- here's the thing: is season four is so heartbreaking, and season five is the worst one. So it's not like you have something waiting on the other side of you. Okay. Right. So this time I was like, no, season four, despite being heartbreaking, is amazing television. I'm gonna watch it again. Mm-hmm. And so I got through that, and I've been watching season five. And it came to the point, season five is also about the media. And uh, it comes to the point where this really famous character on the show dies. Okay. And there's like three different ways that they make it seem so cruel. One, he dies and they go to the the newsroom and they cut the murder from the paper. There's no space. So, like, this huge, infamous character whose name is so important on the streets. It's just forgettable in real life. Just in real life, in the paper, his death gets cut. And then they, the last scene in the episode where this character dies, it's at the morgue. And the guy in the morgue realizes they have his tag on the wrong person. Oh, really? They just fuck you up like that. Like, Yeah. I don't know. Tangent, I guess. Anyway, we're together today. Feels good. Season 7, episode 11. Uh, it's what? May 11, 2017 as we tape. Although we still have an interview re- to record in the morning. So it'll go up on the 12th. S.L. Price, who's caused a lot of buzz this week uh, with his articles he wrote for the MMQB. He set out to write one for them Okay. about Nick Bonacani. And his sudden struggles with CTE at the age of 73 or something like that. Okay. Uh, Late onset, you know, and it's this, like, balancing act. Is the guy just getting old and having dementia? Or is it CTE? Or is it a combination? And his struggles, but he's this guy with all these resources, the head of the Miami Project. Um, a, A guy who's been extremely wealthy after football despite playing in the 70s and 
with all his resources, he still finds frustrations. And then the second article is about one of his teammates who has no resources, mm-hmm. no wife, a 22-year-old son who's trying to get money from the league as part of the settlement and the roadblock. So he's got these two articles, and it sort of reminds me of The Wire in a way, and even The Sopranos, the way they set you up like that with the, you know, yeah, there's this problem, but look at how good we can handle it. Right. Bam, and then here's the here's bad. Well, someone I can't deal with it, right. Uh, so we'll talk with SL Price about that and concussions in general, you know. What 2017, that NHL playoffs, which we'll talk about in three things. It's been a hot topic, right? Should Sidney Crosby be out there? Everyone on Twitter is a concussion doctor now. Well, <laughs> Twitter is great at diagnosing concussions and ACL injuries. I don't know that he was hurt. Uh, we're talking specifically about the second incident, but it sounds like the rule is ridiculous as far as it goes. They said the concu- like the nonpartisan concussion spotters like are supposed to look for head contact between the player and another player or the player and the ice, not the player and the boards. And that's what he hit was the boards. And that's why they said they couldn't pull him off the ice. I don't want the spotters. You don't like the spotters? Get him out. Yeah. Too inconsistent. You know, they pull Connor McDavid off the ice, but Connor McDavid hit his mouth, not his head. They pull it's just it's just stupid. Get it out. Put put an independent doctor on the bench, maybe. Okay. Yeah, I'd be fine with something I like mean, that. I mean, but get these people who are watching on TV or up in a press box and can't even speak to the players. Get them out. Sure. That's not how you doctor. Right. Right? I mean, that's just... But we'll get into that. Um, SL Price and I do as well. Debut today from TheRinger.com. Ben Lindbergh uh, writes about baseball there. Wrote an article about how home runs are up in Major League Baseball. Uh, why? Our home runs up. Well, he wrote about it. We'll talk to him about it later in the show. Okay. Uh, Book Club is, of course, back, still working on the Cubs way. And Don and I will finish with one last thing. But let's start with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. So the Washington Capitals did it again, right? Yeah. Yeah. Perfect team. I was uh, sitting with the boys in the locker room the other day, and we we're talking about how. What do you do with them? Because they have. All the scoring you could want, depth from 1 to 12, mm-hmm. good role players like Justin Williams on offense. They have a Vezza Trophy goalie. They have two guys who can quarterback a power play on defense. They got tough guys like Orpik. I mean, they're a perfect team. They're literally built to be Stanley Cup champions, and they can't get out of the second round. Now, I, I think so you where look, do you go from here? I think you can look at this kind of two ways. Like, if you had never seen that team lose a playoff round before this if you take it just for this playoff round and i know i'm not a pittsburgh fan necessarily so maybe i have they were the better team washington for a lot of the game yeah that's what i was gonna say so what do you and like ovechkin takes the brunt of a lot of this and it turns out he's been playing on one leg after the uh cadre hit yeah he's uh, not going to worlds i guess yeah so i i think there can be a tendency to overreact here 
And if they do, and like people come out with like Trade Ovechkin and stuff, if that happens, I'm going to root for him even harder because I think it's crazy to think that this guy has anything. That, this guy is not the problem. If anything, I thought in the two series they played, they looked a little bit slow. Like definitely slower than Toronto and definitely slower than Pittsburgh. Yeah, they're de- they're definitely the slower of the team. So that's where maybe somewhere they're going to lose Oshie and they're going to lose Shattenkirk. And that's so rough. you can try to plug that's in some rough. some speed there. I, I think Oshie's a better player than I thought than I thought he was. I think, uh, yeah, I watching think this probably last is better two series, than most people thought. Yeah, I mean he does everything. He scores. He hits. He, he skates. Like, he's a he's a good player. But they're gone. Pittsburgh is standing again. Looking at the team, I thought was the worst team of the sixteen that made the playoffs. Uh, but but they have the best player in the playoffs. They have the best right player now, by so. a mile, and they have a goalie who's good enough. And they ran into a Rangers team who just can't score goals when they need to. Nope. I mean, they haven't scored a clutch goal. I know that analytics people are going to hate that, but just show me a meaningful goal the Rangers have scored in like the last three postseasons. Yep. They just don't exist. They don't score a goal, especially in Madison Square Garden. It's just almost puzzling. And in that series, they lost two games when Ottawa had to pull the goalie, and they had a one-goal oh, lead that they yeah. couldn't hold up for another minute. Two games in that series, and then they lost them both in overtime. So they're gone. Uh, I got to think Pittsburgh's going to make it to the cup. I would think so, yeah. I mean, Ottawa's fooled me twice, and Anderson right. is hot enough, and Pittsburgh is vulnerable. They're not the best defensive team. They had a ton of injuries. They're obviously not playing with Latang. Uh, they're struggling on the back end a little bit. And Pittsburgh, they, they play such a disciplined team. Like, I'd almost like them to play more like Toronto. Like, as much as I hate Toronto, they're exciting. They just fly, and, like, maybe that's some of their to their detriment sometimes. Yeah, Pittsburgh so is so calculated. like, But fast. They're fast, right. and they they may not. You might outchance them. Like I bet you the analytics in the series heavily favored Washington. They I had to, yeah. I'm sure they won Corsi every night, puck possession every yet night. Yet Pittsburgh would just wait. They'd block shots, and then they would score a goal when they got the chance. And they have the best player in the world. Connor McDavid isn't. Connor McDavid finishes the playoffs. 16 guys got more points than him in the first two rounds of the playoffs. Yep. Um, okay, it was an okay first playoff run sure. by him, but it's time to scale back. I mean, uh, that's a little bit where it gets crazy. I was I pulled up these numbers uh, earlier. Ovechkin outscored him in this conference round, and Ovechkin's a choke artist I'm doing it on one leg, and nobody said a thing about Connor McDavid. Now, maybe he gets a pass because he's young. It's his first time. And I'm not in. going to suggest that he choked. I, think, I just think that the thought that Ovechkin himself is somehow to blame for that. All I've ever wanted is for people to just chill a little bit with McDavid. Oh, sure. Let him let him become what you think he is before you make it that. Yeah, I know it's I know <laughs> I used to kind of like Edmonton and now I feel like I have a rivalry with him because of the Eichel McDavid thing. But uh McDavid would be the third person on that team I didn't want to see get a uh, shot at the cup behind Lucic and oh my god if Cassie. Zach Cassie oh, got a no. cup it would have been yeah he's miserable it would have been miserable here in Buffalo Dick had to <laughs> yeah. enemy of the sportscasters that's right you're supposed to come on <laughs> an early that's enemy right. of the sportscasters uh, but the Ducks they're miserable their building looks awful on TV nobody cares about them uh, and they're living for another round and maybe two who knows. They're a cool. T- I, I like that team. Nashville is cool. Yeah, that's a cool building too. Like that's, that's awesome. A cool arena. Crowd. Where did that come from? Awesome and yellow. They're just. I don't know if they're front runners or they're just still learning or they only like the playoffs. But man, it's it's kind of like Columbus, where when it's rocking, yeah. it is rocking. You know, 
And I'm sure when it's that in there, it probably feels that. But sure. It's a great city. Um, I don't know. If you had to pick a cup, two teams to be in it and one to win it right now, what would you do? I don't know. We lost all the good storylines kind of with – and thankfully, because like I said, in here in Buffalo, it would have been miserable if it was Toronto and Edmonton or something like that. Uh, but those are probably the more exciting matchups. As far as rooting interest goes, I think it'd be cool. Like Ottawa has the best story, maybe in Eric Carlson kind of having a coming out party for a guy that's had Norris trophies. And uh, the Craig Anderson story is really cool. And uh, I don't know. I don't know much about either team. I think Ryan the- Getzlaff is cool. Like I think he's like, He's a guy I respect a little bit more after watching his playoffs, kind of the way I did with Joe Thornton last year. And even this year, Joe Thornton played on one leg. But uh, like he just seems like the cool, old, does-everything-right He's played, played great, yeah. too. Uh, I think for the NHL, there's only one option here, and it's Nashville-Pittsburgh. I think anything else is death. Yeah. Already, Ottawa-Anaheim has proved to be the worst Stanley Cup in history. <laughs> oh, yeah. And they do not want that to be a repeat there. Yep. Um, you could maybe get by with Pittsburgh Anaheim, but Nashville Anaheim is death too. They really need Pittsburgh, and I know they would prefer Nashville. In the NBA, Golden State and Cleveland are eight and zero. Yeah, and the story of the NBA playoffs has been blowouts. Even Charles Barkley went on some show and said the NHL playoffs are way better than the NBA playoffs. Yeah, right. Yeah, I saw that. Um, I saw Shaq arguing with somebody about how. Someone made the argument: if you take away Jordan's rings, is LeBron the better player? And I think Damashek is a big ring guy because he always has been about like Roethlisberger and like Eli. And I, I think I'm not as big a ring guy, so I think you, I think you can make the argument for LeBron. Jordan was pretty great. Yeah, so, absolutely. I don't know enough about basketball. I don't to either. Be honest. I don't. When you're splitting hairs between those sure. two guys. I don't know enough nuance. Yeah, I, I don't either. But but uh, they're both incredible. There was one thing I'll say is there was a ton of Hall of Fame players in the NBA when Michael Jordan played, and none of them could win a championship unless he wasn't in the league. Yeah, that's true. You know, I mean, you're talking about Barkley and Ewing and Robinson and all the guys from the Dream Team. The only one who could win was Pippen, who played with them, right? And then Olajuwon, who when got his baseball, rings right? when he was playing baseball. Yep. You know, so that that's a great, that's a really good point. But I don't know, honestly, I don't know enough. Plus, when LeBron got his first ones, he was playing on an All Star team. I mean, maybe his his last one is his most impressive, but uh, the other ones were on All Star teams. Yeah, I think coming back from three to one, doing it almost by yourself against a team that just killed everybody, two yeah. games or whatever. But as far as the NBA, to me, I'm not interested until those two teams are playing, I don't think. I haven't watched a second of it. Yeah, I mean, that's not surprising. I haven't, I haven't watched, watched much more than a second. A few seconds. Uh, moving on. Josh Gordon, not reinstated by the NFL. You know what the best tweet I saw about this was? If only he had taken the opiates pushed by his team's doctors instead of smoked weed, he'd still be playing. And that's so true. The NFL Why? Has the opiate, oh, doctors are pushing opiates and he turned them down? Well, no, I don't weed. know that. I just mean uh-uh. that's okay, but this guy smokes weed and now he can't play but football. But he knows the rules. Yeah, I guess. He knows the rules and he breaks them over and over and over again. I'm out of feeling bad. I know people want to politicize it, and I have no problem with weed being legal in the NFL if it's going to help them with pain. I guess what what are they trying to prove with it, though, with this guy in particular? 
They're like just trying league, to prove that you just can't break, break the, the rules because you're Josh Gordon and you feel like it. I guess. I, I just don't think the league is better without him. So what do you do? You say, All right, well, yeah, Josh, you failed your seventh test, but we'll reinstate you. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. At some point, you got to clean up or just get out. Yeah. Plenty of weed yeah, to smoke after football. He's a tough one. Right. I, right. Careers are only, what, average of three years? He's a good player. Maybe he's a seven, maybe nine. And then what? You're 31 years old? <laughs> right. You can't get enough weed in the next right. 55 years of life. Look at the NFL has problems, and I have no problem with them saying, you know what, we're, it's enough's enough, let's put weed into football. I have no problem with that. Could care less, to be honest. Uh, couldn't care less. Uh, but Josh Gordon's a mess. Yeah. You know, we had a what team. What was the reason for denying his reinstatement? We had a team in our dynasty league, and we were going over his players. And you put out a list of keepers. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I said I only had one that I disagreed on. And that was Josh and Gordon? it was Gordon. Because I just didn't believe he'd yeah, ever play. get his shit together. Enough to play. And two, last time he was on the field, he didn't show much. And now you're getting into this time where how long can you be away from a game like and this and still just come back and still be dy- dy- dynamic enough to you know just come back and be whatever here's uh, an article on yahoo.com NFL denies troubled wide receiver uh, the last time he played a game was December 21st 2014 wow it'll be a lo- a little longer the NFL allows him in the league what was Florida the year he was crushing it was that 2013 maybe 12 12 or 11 12 even. year yeah Okay, that's going back. Yeah. Uh, Gordon applied for a statement from his latest suspension and was denied by the NFL, according to USA Today. He's allowed to apply for a statement again in the fall. Depending what exact date the NFL sets, it could be well into the regular season before Gordon can even ask the league again if he can return to play for Cleveland. For a player who's missed two full seasons due to suspensions for substance abuse policy violations, missing the entire offseason while with the team, would be a huge blow. Um, Gordon is a cautionary tale, unlike Justin Blackman, another troubled wide receiver who fade away quickly and quietly. Gordon wants back in. Last year he was set to return, but had a reported relapse and was suspended for four games and entered rehab. He has had drug issues dating back to a rocky college career and has derailed his NFL career. Doesn't say on Yahoo. Let me see if in the USA Today article they link if it says specifically why. No, just says it's denied. Hmm. No word on why yet. I know he sure can, they have a reason. He can retry in the fall. So maybe to get reinstated, you have to test again and pass. And it sounds like he probably isn't passing. That wouldn't be surprising. It's a bummer. Yeah, he was. I mean, that year he had was only he had a four game suspension. I think to start the year, and then like the last twelve games were up there with the best twelve game stretch ever. It was like D.D. Westbrook in college this year, where. Every game is like a 65-yard at least touchdown guaranteed. I remember in that Josh Gordon run, there'd be there was a game like in December, maybe like around fantasy playoff time, and it was like, oh man, he's going to be a bust. But then sure enough, fourth quarter, he busts out a long team, right. 60, 70 yards or whatever. So, um, Last thing, it's Derek Jeter week. Have you noticed? I did not know. 
They're going to retire number two okay. at Yankee Stadium, thus ending the possibility that you could play for the Yankees and wear a single-digit number. Oh, okay. They will all be retired. retired. Yeah, the last two uh, were number six, which is retired for Joe Torre because managers get numbers and uniforms. Okay. And uh, number two for Jeter. Um, that coincides with the resurgence of the Yankees. Uh, we haven't really done this yet. We haven't checked in on baseball. And later in the show, we're going to have uh, Ben Lindbergh from Major League Baseball or from the ringer.com to talk about baseball. But do you know what the Yankees' record is right now? No idea. 21 and 10. Wow. You know what their record was last year when they won 21 games? 21 and 40. 21 and 22. 21 and 22. Okay. So they weren't as bad as I thought, but they weren't. Yeah, I mean, they're a plus 56 run differential. They're hitting a ton of home runs. Um, and they actually play Houston. Starting, Why? What, starting what, what changed? Young players. That's it? Just Their pitching is maybe a question, but they're bashing the ball. There you go. They have 180 runs scored. Seattle has 176. And then no one else is really close in the American League. So they're just scoring a ton of runs. Yeah. Um, I wanted to say this. It's a lot cooler. Baseball's cooler when the Yankees are good. It seems to be more relevant for sure. Because then you get Yankee fans and Yankee haters. Yeah, and Baltimore's 22-11. and 11, Boston's 18-16. and 16. That's going to be a great division. You know, three teams above 500. Where you look at... Didn't Toronto start really slow and they've been really good lately? They're six and four in their last ten. They okay. have a minus twenty six run differential and they're thirteen and twenty one. Yeah, so they're not exactly. They haven't climbed out of any hole. Yeah, they're in dead last in the league. Oh, okay. In the American League. I'm just looking at American League right now. But I want to say they started like zero and eight or something crazy. Yeah, bad start, for sure. Uh, in the National League, the Nats. The Nats are like the Caps. Where I don't care what you do in the regular season anymore. Yeah. You're going to win a playoff round. So they haven't even won a round, the Nats. Forget about trying to get into the conference finals. And this goes back to when they tore up the league and then shut down Strasburg, right? right. Whatever year that was. Yeah, they didn't four make years the ago. playoffs. Right. Cause they're just going to make it every year, so they didn't need them. Yep. Cardinals are leading the Central. And the Colorado Rockies, maybe the surprise of the year. 22 and 13. The Cubs are only 17 and 17. I'm not that surprised. They were a classic World Series hangover candidate. And I think right around June, July, they'll start clicking. I'm sure they'll be there in the end, somewhere near the top. They're too talented. Uh, but I wanted to check in on baseball and say congratulations to Derek Jeter. He's going into Monument Park. And they're going to have to have a new stadium for just the Monument Park. What happens when they run out of numbers? I don't know. Maybe that's why their new star is number 99. Okay. You Going know? with the hockey numbers. He had to go high. He's a big Gretzky guy. You yeah. Know? So. All right. I think that should do. That was fun. With that said, we'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll talk to SL Price. <laughs> All right, our next guest grew up in Stamford, Connecticut. He's a graduate of the University of North Carolina. 
He really requires little introduction here as he's making his 10th appearance. A warm sportscaster's welcome to SL Price. What's going on, Mr. Price? Oh, nothing much. Just, uh, just uh, hanging in. So Everybody lo- else. Head above water, you know. Looking back, how do you feel about the book and how the book cycle went and all that? Oh, um, no, it's been uh, incredibly, no, it was incredibly great. Um, I went to uh, Aliquippa before Christmas, uh, did an event at the library there, uh, which is the jewel of the town. Um, and the people were unbelievably warm and welcoming. And, and uh, I think overall, um, the book got a good reception there. So um, that's important because uh, uh, in many ways, they're the ultimate critics. They, they know that place in their bones in a way that I'll never know. So um, to have them accept the book is, is uh, really, really important to me. So I have this app that what it does is it looks at my Twitter feed and it tells mm-hmm. me about articles that people retweet. Uh, so like it will say this article is retweeted by these people. And, you mm-hmm. know, usually you see like four or five people will retweet whatever the most popular thing is. Yesterday right. I had 16 people on my time. I know two days ago, I guess it was 16 people on my timeline retweet your Nick Bonacani piece. Wow. It's buzz. I mean, it was buzz. I mean, usually it's like, like I said, three or four. Right. I'm sure, it depends on who you follow, which things are going to be retweeted more or less. Um, my timeline is mostly people who follow sports media. So, uh, like I said, I had it by far maybe the most I've ever seen. Uh, and it's interesting because I read the piece and I didn't find Nick Bonacani to be all that sympathetic of a figure. Am I cold hearted? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you cold-hearted? Is that what you're asking? <laughs> yeah, is that the question? <laughs> that is the question, because I just didn't find him, especially compared to the second piece, I didn't find Nick Bonacani to be all that sympathetic of a of a figure for some reason. Well, I, you know, I do. Uh, you know, I, I, look, he's a, he's a hard-charging, complicated, incredibly dynamic figure. Um, the fact is, is that, <laughs> you know, Sports are hard. They're mean. They're cruel. They're tough. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're not a comic book. And these are not overall. People ask me every once in a while, was he, was he nice? Meaning, talking about somebody. They're almost uh, nice. As, I mean, Nick is incredibly pleasant to be around. And, and he's, uh, I mean, this is, his situation is very tough right now. So, so pleasant's the wrong word. But he, he's a very charming guy in many ways. Very smart. Um, but overall, you know what this what sports demands of these people is is toughness, uh, hardness. You're you're uh, an element of cruelty. I mean, you're you're beating up someone else in public, and people are cheering you on. Uh, even in sports, you know that are less physical, uh, you're essentially uh, making someone else look bad. That's half of it. It's not just about you. And so, um, you know, the idea that 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 these guys are not complicated figures with with hard, complicated sides to them is, uh, is, is naive. I think, um, I, I think he's a mix like, like all of us. And, uh, of course I'll, I'll guarantee that the fact that he was, you know, the president of us tobacco and probably wasn't engaging in that issue in a way that you'd like probably goes away toward you thinking that on the other hand, this is a guy who, 
um, fully supported and, and took part in the 1965 boycott of the AFL All-Star Game. Um, when the when black players were treated poorly going to New Orleans, and they right. had moved, they moved the game to Houston, mm-hmm. um, you know one of his best friends came out as gay, and Nick is you'd think would be this sort of hard macho guy, and he was incredibly supportive of of uh, his friend when that happened. Uh, you know, no no questions asked. Um, you know, so it's uh, he's a complicated figure, and personally as a writer, I like that. I I, I would rather have him be complicated than. Uh, easy and I, and I dare say that um, with uh, with almost no exceptions, uh, all the great athletes that I've ever dealt with in my part uh, in my life have an element of of hardness, toughness, uh, perhaps even cruelty. That that um, self centeredness, you know, all these things, you know, that that are not necessarily attractive human qualities, and some of them grow through it, and and and. Uh, and build upon it or, 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 but it's, but it's a difficult walk and it's, and it's a, it's a difficult business. I'll get, That's why we find them so fascinating. You know? I want to get personal for a second. Mm. I told you that, you know, my daughter's sitting here with me and her name is Paula and she's Paula because it was really important to me above anything else to name her after my grandmother who had early onset dementia and really early. I mean, she was born in 1929 and mm-hmm. by 1988, she went to see beaches and came home saying she didn't like it because it was bloody and somehow ended up at the right. Hunt for Red October. Right. Um, and her life was very sad and tragic. She had a brutal, my grandfather wasn't a good guy, and... He had two families, which was the weirdest thing when I was at his funeral as a six-year-old to try to figure out, you know, a real old-school Italian guy. Uh, so it, was, it actually made me laugh when I was thinking about it when uh, Bonacani was like, you know, what's the problem with having a wife and a girlfriend? I said, wow, this, this is so close because my grandfather actually did that. Um, and then she raised my mom and my aunt my uncle and then she got sick and then she died in a public home and nobody really cared besides us i mean it was just a very really normal thing you know and that to me it was tragic it really tragic and it shook mm-hmm. my whole family and then i read the first story and it just didn't feel tragic it it felt upsetting and disappointing and i'm sure awful for his family um but it also felt very maybe maybe common in a sense that I'm sure that there's people from all walks of life who are engaging in so many professions who into their 70s start to feel the effects of those. Of course. And this is a guy who lived a very privileged life for a very long time, did great things, as you said, also some really complicated things. I can't mm-hmm. believe he doesn't see the irony between the fighting for the um, tobacco companies and now fighting against the NFL. Uh, But then I read the second article, and it was totally different. I felt like I was reading something tragic, something something really sad. Like, it was a different level, I feel like. So I was conflicted about that. There are two two different stories. One is, is, Bonacani's story is about a search. He, um, He clearly has deficits 
because of football. But of course, past the age of 60, 65, 70, um, obviously uh, the brain atrophies naturally or, or unnaturally, but there are other age-appropriate uh, illnesses and um, debilitations that add to the picture and make it confusing. And I thought Nick was, and by the way, I, you know, it doesn't matter what I think. You, you brought to the story whatever you bring with it, and I'm, I have no problem with that. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm, just, I'm just trying to explain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I found Nick's story um, compelling because it is so confusing that he is still searching. And unlike most, he's an outlier. No one has more resources at hand um, to handle this issue. And um, in many ways, what, what happened, the Jim Kick story, I originally was going to have that as part of, of Nick's story as sort of the opposite, what, you know, the kind of player who, who doesn't have the resources that Nick does, who doesn't have the mental and, and financial and familial resources to, to, to help him try and wend his way through this incredibly complicated system of, of bureaucracies. And... Um, and so I thought Nick's story was valuable, aside from the fact that he's part of this incredibly unique um, Miami Dolphins undefeated team. Um, because, precisely because of the confusion, the, un- the, the lack of clarity, the commonality he has with people in the world, but also the idea that there's this factor of football and hits that complicates the issue into incredible fogginess. And the fact that he has all those resources and is still confused. And meanwhile, then there's somebody like Jim Kick, who, and, and as Nick said, and that's why Nick wanted to do the story, was if, if you imagine if it's this, like this for me, can you imagine it's for what it's like for, for people who do not have these resources, who do not have the wherewithal to understand or at least try to understand, know the language? And Jim Kick is that person. I mean, Jim Kick was uh, the, other side of the other side of the ball, literally, and he, um, you know, he, he, he didn't have a wife at home with him, a partner, um, tracking the deficits. His son sort of, who was 20, 21 years old at the time, was sort of a, by default, his sister was off playing tennis, his, right. his wife, ex-wife had a new, new family. Yeah. And, and so Jim's sort of by himself. And obviously not knowing what's happening to him. And there's nobody there to see what's happening to him. And he doesn't have the financial resources. And, and he's not plugged in, you know, the Internet where he's looking to find out what, what the resources are. And so he, he literally falls through the cracks. And now he's in good shape, not good shape. He's in a good place right now because he finally, they finally did figure it out. But it took years. And, you know, uh, finally he got with the, the 88 plan, NFL's uh, 88 plan, which provides um, up to $133,000 for, for um, institutionalized care or assisted living, which is where Jim is. Um, um, and, you know, he's, he's got an... And, and, and by the way, his case is far more specifically realized. The, the, his neurologist is, says it's, it's just basically 100% in his mind that, that this is CTE because you can see usually CTE is so microscopic you can't see the damages until autopsy, which is which is still the official thing. You you, you can't right, diagnose no CTE until after death. Right. But he says there's no other reason for Jim to have these massive holes in his brain 
except from 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 brain trauma. He did not. He never had a history of a car accident or anything like that. Um, and so, um, so Jim's diagnosis, unlike Nick's, is is um, is also far more specific and understandable. I mean, there's, you, you can come away from the Nick story because they're still searching. Uh, you know, obviously, all the doctors think that CTE or it, it, it might well or must well be a factor. It's football taking five hundred thousand hits to the head obviously has to be a factor, especially on the right side, which is where he was prone to tackle on the right side of his brain. Uh, but it's just not as clear with with Nick, and so I think that's that's the spectrum of all these ex players, you know, especially of that age. And this, of course, is the the generation that built the DNA of this of the NFL we have today. I mean, essentially, early, late 60s, early 70s, when we think of the Jets, the Steelers, the Oilers, not the Oilers, sorry, the, the, the Raiders, um, uh, the Dolphins, the persona of those teams and sort of the modern cash box NFL began then. That's when it really, really soaked into the culture and became a cultural phenomenon. And that this, that generation is now really wrestling with this issue full bore um, is, I think, appropriate because they built this NFL. And um, I find that I think part of what you're saying about the reaction to it is I think people feel that, that this is the generation that, that really made them fall in love with the game, uh, where it became a real part of American culture, um, I, I mean, far beyond sports. And uh, and I think it's appropriate that that's the generation that that may well uh, be a tipping point and send people to 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 think twice about it. You know, one thing that really bothered me one, you know, I never have a problem hating on Roger Goodell usually, and it really bothered me that it, I get the sense, and maybe I'm just reading into it, but I get the sense that they almost make it intentionally difficult for the players to have to jump through these hoops. Almost like they want to say, you know, hey, there's just billions of dollars and resources out there, but it seems like it, why is it so damn hard? Like why? Well, I mean, I mean, first of all, it's money. Look again, follow the money. Yeah. Right? It's always uh, not a bad, uh, always the best sort of default uh, marching order. Follow the money. I mean, there's a lot of money involved. It's like the wire. A billion dollars. Lester and, Freeman. And, uh, for the for billion dollars in the settlement, and of course, you know, it could have been more, you know, if if, if they didn't settle. Um, and um, so the players, and that's how the players feel. They feel literally, we built this game, and why is it so hard? After we sacrificed literally our brains and our bodies to it, uh, you know, why is it so hard to, for us to get clarity? Right. And they're totally. I'll tell right. you that that the you know they the NFL has. Care programs, player outreach programs, they've gotten better about it, um, but the outreach is not as good as it could be. Um, obviously, you've got a, 960 players involved in, in player care have been helped out, uh, $12 million they've gotten, but there's over 20,000 players who are sort of covered by the, you know, an estimated 20,000 covered by the concussion. So, so even there, you can see the numbers, you know, there should be a lot more who should be being helped, even if it's not the full 20,000. There's certainly some players who can take care of themselves. Uh, but overall, I mean, look, there, there are different categories of, of mental illness that these guys have to figure out 
in order to qualify for the settlement? What kind of, are they, is it dementia? Is it ALS? Is it Alzheimer's? Well, they have to go see doctors. They have to see specialists. They have to, uh, to figure, you know, travel. And, and sometimes it has to be, not sometimes, it has to be an NFL-sanctioned neurologist. Um, and these guys, at the same time, are not necessarily equipped uh, because they're mentally slipping. Right. For, for no other reason. I mean, you know, dealing with any kind of bureau- healthcare bureaucracy and any kind of corporate bureaucracy is, is hard enough if you're completely on your game. Yeah, so, no, I um, know. I know firsthand how hard it is. Right. Yeah. So, so, so what I'm saying is, is that essentially they're, they're being asked to sort of categorize and, and catalog their, their illnesses and their deficiencies in order to qualify for the, um, for the settlement. And there's lawyers you know, circling and, you know, trying to help. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. I mean, and, and these guys are, you know, they're football players. And, you know, do they have a full-time family member who's, who's ready and willing and able to, to, to give them 24 hours a day help, first of all, in the house, but also to just simply arrange and, and uh, doctor's appointments and, and line up meetings and so on and so forth to try and figure out what's wrong. I mean, I think the biggest failure is the NFL should be working really far more strongly partnered with the teams and the team should each team should be the point person in reaching out the alumni associations in really reaching out being aggressive in in reaching out to their ex-players um because um and and, and some teams are better than others but it, it should be more uniform but that that's the organization that the players are going to trust far more than the nfl and also that's where they they feel a loyalty to that organization for obvious reasons, and 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 a, and, a, and a loyalty, of course, to their teammates. So um, they're going to feel comfortable in that. And I just feel like the outreach, um, you know, sometimes the the teams do have great outreach programs, but but it's not getting to the player. And they're just they there just has to be a far more aggression uh, to help uh, on on the part of uh, league slash team. Just you know the powers that be. To help guide these players through through what has become incredibly complicated um, thicket of of bureaucracies, because you've got first there's just straight financial care, medical care that's separate from the concussion settlement. So you know, and then there's going through that. I mean, it's all incredibly complicated, and these guys feel very much adrift and, and lost. Yeah, and I, I don't, I don't blame them. I mean, right? You know, geez, I, I know how hard it can be. I really do. I, one thing I love about articles like this is it seems like we're we're piling up an infinite amount of resources. We have your two articles, uh, movies like League of Denial or uh, Headshot or or uh, uh, what was the other one called? Uh, League of Concussion was the Will Smith yeah. movie. And there was another documentary that was almost the same as League of the Nile. I can't think of the name mm-hmm. of it. Um, and obviously people like the people from BU, the former wrestler, this is all this resources. We can't say in another generation that we didn't know the risks, right? I mean, Oh, no. And, and, and although I will tell you, it's, it's amazing. There, <laughs> there's been response to this that, uh, you know, I think every time there's response. I don't think this is unique. These guys knew what they were getting into. No, well, those guys didn't. I hate to tell you. Yeah, they in, did. In the 70s, 60s, yeah. 70s, 50s, 80s, 90s, they didn't know what they were getting into. Yeah, no there was, way. There's a culture. Not only did they not know the damages of, of, of head-on hitting, you know, just the brain trauma from concussion, repeated concussions, but there was also a, and, and remains, you know, 
a very celebrated uh, culture of, you know, wipe the other guy out and get your bell rung and, and you know, get back in there. And, and uh, you know, manlyhood, machismo. And, uh, you know, Jim Kick talks about, you know, you go to the sideline and, and the guy holds up four fingers and says, how many? And, and, and he'd say three, and they'd say, okay, close enough, get back in there. Right. And, you know, that, that, that was, that, and by the way, that, that filtered down to high school, colleges, Pop Warner. That was not just NFL macho. Everybody was watching that and, and, and did it as well. So the other thing I do, I, I, which is not a part of the story at all, but I do think, you know, the NFL, uh, one question I have, the NFL's average NFL career is three years. Now, obviously, somebody like Bonacani was 14 years. There are guys who, were, who played far longer, and the damage and, and, and is far more explicable. Um, but, it, but, you know, the, if the average NFL career is three years, and these guys are playing since they were 10 years old, why is it only the NFL that is on the hook? Right. And what obviously, the NCAA is, is 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 dealing with this now a little bit as well, or, or not a little bit. They are dealing with it. But I mean, high schools, Pop Warner. I mean, the fact is, is that it's the entire sport. Um, it, you know, this is a lifetime of hits. Um, Nick's, you know, five hundred twenty thousand hits. You know, which God, God knows if it's an exaggeration, but it certainly entails nearly, uh, you know, twenty five years of playing football. Right. And that's it's, practice, it's, and, 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 and practices were far harder also. They weren't, you know, they, back then. They were hitting all the time. Right, two-a-days. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, not, not taking body temperatures constantly. Uh, right. Yeah, I mean, the culture years ago, I mean, it's in, insanity today compared to what it is today. You know, what, what, when I read your stories, I feel, the tra- like I said, I felt the tragedy of the second story. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I get equally frustrated by the concussion doctors on Twitter who say, you know, Sidney Crosby should not play tonight. Right. Uh, you know, first of all, you you have no; those people have no clue about his baseline. T- like they do have a protocol that apparently he's passed, right? And also, Sidney Crosby, who's a very intelligent, well-spoken individual, absolutely at this point knows every risk you know when yeah, i was, yeah, yeah, yeah. When, but, but hold on a second hold on, so I, I, I saw that i saw that with melrose the other night where he's talking about well crosby knows crosby knows his head there are a couple things one is crosby is also setting example for the rest of the league i mean crosby is the best player in the league and he wields a lot of clout okay so uh, but there are other players you know i mean you've got to have doctors be able to say you know what sydney even if you don't you think you're okay because that's the culture. The culture is rub some dirt on it, get in there. I'm not saying Sidney Crosby isn't aware of it, that he's not a special case. He's had his four concussions. But what I'm saying is, is, is just because Sidney Crosby says, you know what, I'm good, that's not good enough. Because there's been a, you know what, I'm good, and, and uh, for 50, 100 years on this. And players who don't have the clout of Sidney Crosby, um, you know, who can say, you know what, I'm going to sit out and, it, and, and not suffer any kind of repercussions for not playing because I'm Sidney Crosby, um, might feel the pressure to say, you know what, I'm good because Sidney Crosby said, you know what, I'm good. So I, there has to be a, a, a medical um, element right, that is which able I, to say. My understanding is they do baseline testing yeah. before the season. And then after concussion, I, I have no, no, no. I have no problem with that. I'm just saying the idea that Sidney Crosby knows, 
No, what mm-hmm. I'm saying is he knows the risks returning back after being cleared for a concussion. Yeah, but well, Melrose, I'm sorry, I, I jumped in. What I'm saying is Melrose, for example, the other night was saying, well, Sidney Crosby knows what it's like to have a concussion and, and feel the way he does. So, yeah, well, you know, but... Yeah, that wasn't what I meant. I wasn't trying okay. to pair at Melrose. What I was saying, like, I was going to give an example like this. Like, uh, I was just a good enough hockey player uh, to not, I wasn't good enough to play in college, but I was just good enough to be on a staff for a traveling hockey school and right. have credibility, right? And I used to travel all around the country with kids, kids my age, you know, teaching kids younger than me hockey. And there was these kids from Western Canada that would be on the staff all the time, and they would say to me that they loved this. That you know, as soon as they were done with college, they were going back to Western Canada to work in these oil fields and they would talk about how awful it was. And so, well, mm-hmm. why do you do this? It's like, well, they're dangerous jobs and they suck, but they pay 80, yeah. 90, sometimes a hundred thousand dollars. And it's the, in my, it, where I'm from, it's the easiest and quickest way to earn that kind of money. And I know that I might get hooked on drugs because that happens to a lot of people. Right. I know I might get lung cancer or something like, like they, they had all these risks and they, and I, I would say to them, like, that's crazy. You're already, you're going to have a college degree, find something else. And they're like, no, man, this is just, it's just too, the money's just too good. And it's just too easy. I, I know I'm going to take the risk. I'm sure some of those guys who have obviously a lot of touch with, they maybe fell into the bad traps. And some of them, right. like they'd say, if you last five years, you're a supervisor and you got a $200,000 desk job for the rest of your life. Right. I'm sure there's some of those too. The point is, is they knew exactly what, what the deal was. They knew it top to bottom. And I think now in sports, the athletes know it top to bottom at this point. So sure, should there be doctors giving them actual real medical advice? Yes. But after that, if the player decides to go back to play, I think people need to shut up a little bit. Well, I, I, I still disagree. Okay. I still disagree. And I, I'll tell you why. All right. Because athletes, it's the same thing with, with performance-enhancing drugs. Athletes are trained to get out there, their, their, their persona, their personality is, I'm going to get out there and, and win. I'm going to give up my body. You ask, you know, would you, if it took five years off your life, would you take performance-enhancing drugs? You know, we've seen those surveys. People are like, yes, athletes. Okay? So there, there's a higher power that, and I mean the leagues, whose job it is, I mean, I, I've never blamed any athlete for using performance-enhancing drugs per se. Because the, the athlete's job is to have an edge at all times. That, that's who they are. They're, they're always looking for the extra edge. The job of the league and the team is to protect the sport from that and to, pre- to protect the players from themselves. You can't trust the players to police themselves completely on this, especially when there's the pressures of money. As, and, and as I, for example, I especially never blamed the players in minor league baseball who were trying to get an edge, you know, Barry Bonds might have been inexplicable to me. He was already a Hall of Famer, you know, before, you know, we before suspected, he steroid, right? you know, ped use. I mean, but minor leaguers who are looking to, to take care of their families and move up. I mean, I get it. I get that equation. And I, and I understand that imperative. And also, it's just, that's what makes them who they are. That kind of personality is what makes them great in many ways, is always looking for the edge, always caring so much, always being so competitive. But you've got to protect the, the athlete and the sport from that. But it's not their job to protect the sport from that. It's the, it's the, it's the league and the commissioner's job to, 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 to uh, protect um, the sport from the abuses of that. And it is, it is the teams, 
specifically to you know job I feel to protect the athlete from himself <laughs> yeah, because I they see. will always look for that extra edge. I mean that's you know pine tar. I mean let, let's take it back. You know what, however you want to use, they're always looking for an edge. Gaylord Perry. Well, somebody's got to say no, 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 <laughs> because the they're always pushing the edge of the envelope. Well, I don't. And know. So if Sidney Crosby or or somebody else says, you know, no, no, I'm good. Derek Bugard, uh, you know, somebody's got to say, you know what? Actually, we have a rule in place. Maybe it's too much. Maybe it's too extreme. But now we've got to protect the sport. Now we've got to protect the players. So we might I, we I, might be arguing like with each other a little bit because I do agree that there needs to be a protocol. I think right. My, my I think what you're saying they you, what you the said was that you said, what you said. I believe was yeah. that Sidney Crosby should have the final say. No, at least that, no, that no, was no. the impression I got. No, what I was saying is okay. The league has a rule in place with the baseline testing, and to return to the ice, there's like right. a four or five step process that yeah. Sidney Crosby completed. Right, he practiced yeah. by himself the one day. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. No, and I'm that, talking about far more general than this specific case. Right, That's and right. I, I guess what I'm saying is, okay, the league puts the rules in place. Yes. And then when the athlete clears those rules, mm-hmm. it should be up to him with with whether he wants to continue playing. Like athletes all the time said, I've had four concussions. That's right. it. I'm done. I'm out. Oh, no, you no, know? of course. Yeah, no, um, no, 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 absolutely. But you're, you're absolutely right. My, my misunderstanding. No, that, that's okay. I, I, I thought you were saying that, no. you know. No, of course, up, we, we yeah. need process, and, and the process needs to be tweaked. I mean, I don't know I don't know how perfect it is, but, like, you know, there was the example earlier where um, Connor McDavid, I think it was, hit his, hit his mouth and had, like, a bloody mouth. Right. And they made him, like, miss a period, and he kept saying, like, no, I hit my mouth. Right. You know, but nobody would believe that he hit his mouth and not his right. head. You know, I don't know. Uh, yeah, so but that, at this point, that's because, perfect, because of, of, of PR reasons and medical reasons, I mean, the medical reasons trumping the PR, but I can guarantee you, PR, at this point, everybody is so solicitous about this issue that the player has to sort of, you know, they, okay. Yeah, you have to be follow the protocol. Cautious, yep. cautious to a fault at this point, because who wants the alternative? Yeah, I guess you do have to follow the protocol, and they need to find some consistency in it, I guess. Um, you know, they, I guess if, you know, if it's a quarterback or if it's a lineman, you know, sometimes it seems like there's a little hesitation. Um, I I don't know. They need to perfect that part of it, but no, I do agree that the leagues are now putting processes in place. My problem is, is that, you know, after the players have passed the processes, there's still these armchair quarterbacks, you know, who think that they get to decide for Sidney Crosby, what he wants to do. Like, you know, I think it. I, I'm sure there's a lot of players in the '70s who're saying, "Man, I wish there was somebody saying those things to me." And those guys, right, but they, but, and those but guys they are right because they just the calculated risk, taking the calculated. They risk. might have, but they didn't yeah. know. So I feel terrible for those guys, you know. Right. But now in the modern day, I listed. Oh, we know so much now, and we're learning more right. and more all the time. And you know, I was going to tell you about my brother who did nothing but play hockey his whole life, got a D1 scholarship to play hockey at Yale. He, his junior year. He played against Harvard at Madison Square Garden, and it, me, him, and one of his friends were walking down the street to his hotel the night before the game, and he was talking to his friend, and I was just standing back kind of listening. And he said, yeah, you know, I think after next year I'll probably play pro hockey. You know, I don't think I'll play in the NHL, but I want to play at least a little bit of pro, you know. And then his senior year, he broke his leg at Cornell five games in. 
And then his focus was, all I want to do is finish my Yale career with my Yale jersey on, not watching my Yale teammates. And he played the last three games of the season, two playoff games and an NCAA tournament game. His last game was against um, Jack Eichel and BU in the NCAA tournament. And after that, he said, he took off his jersey, and he came out of the locker room, and he said, all right, I'm good. I gave everything my body has I gave to hockey. And hockey was nice enough to give me a Yale degree, and I'm not going to ride right. a bus in the East Coast League for a Yale degree. So he took everything he had, and he made a, he made a clear decision. You know, right. and, and I think that all athletes are capable of that now. You know, all the information is there. His was Absolutely. a head injury, his leg injury, different thing, but, you know. No, I hear you. Yeah. So, anyway, I love uh, the pieces. We're just about up on time. It's at uh, BySLPrice on Twitter. Um, I was telling Jane Levy, <laughs> Levy the other day. Uh, I didn't want to screw that up. Jane Levy the other day uh, about our wonderful history with Twitter and how I mm. bribed you onto the platform, and I'm working on doing the same for her. Uh, yeah, dra- don't do it, Jane. <laughs> dragging her out. Uh, but yeah. it's BySLPrice there where you can uh, – Obviously, find links. And these stories were great. Um, the Monday morning, the MMQB.com, uh, and they're right there still on the front page just below uh, John Lynch and Andrew Luck. You can find them uh, currently as we talk. Uh, and the one, the uh, Bonacani piece is also in the magazine. Uh, lots of double issues, huh? What's with all the double issues? Is that just the yeah, way? Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it might be. I, I have no idea. Man, What's happening? Everything's you know, a d- double issues. Wow. I mean, they're nice and thick. Well, I read it on the iPad, so they they all look the ah, same to me. It's all it's all nice and thick. Yeah, it looks beautiful on there. Uh, yeah, it does. The book, of course, one of our favorites on um, Al Equipa and football. There, we had a great time promoting it, and it's still available on Amazon. Uh, playing Through the Whistle, Steel Football in an American Town by S.L. Price. If you're looking for a Father's Day gift, I'm sure that'd be a great one. Anything else you want to promote, mention? No, that's great. It's great to be here. Great I, to tussle with you. Yeah, I had a lot of fun today. Good sorry I, uh, sorry I, I, I made up an argument that didn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, but you, you make good points, I think, within the argument. I just don't. Yeah, no, yeah, no, no, so no, no absolutely. I misunderstood yeah. the... the, the uh, uh, the Sydney Crosby. I, I missed the once you clear the protocol. Right. Yeah. 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 That is the key part in two thousand and six, seven. And frankly, you I got to tell you, I mean, it was, yeah. it was, it was, it was. It's more. I, I just, you know, I, I'm, I'm overly cautious at this point, and of course, I'm sensitized to it because of this recent story. But I just worry about these guys. I mean, really, really, in the end, it's just, it's just, uh, is it worth it? And look, Nick, Nick Bonacani said, you know, this is. Um, football was good to me and I had no other way out. And so he said, you know, so you, everybody pays the piper, you know. And so um, he knows it was a calcula- calculated risk. Um, um, but it's it's a fearsome cost. It's a fearsome price to pay. Absolutely. All right, Mr. Price, thank you. Talk thank to you, you so much. All right. Bye-bye. You know, a funny thing about this song, so, uh, the other last time I did this, when it was just me, Yeah. you know, I was looking for one, and they have like an 11-hour version. Yeah, you know what? Uh, YouTube, <laughs> it's probably going way back now, but they used to have a time limit right. on videos. I don't remember what it was, a half hour or something, and then they made it like 
10, 12 hours, and people would just post the silliest crap and just make it 10 hours long. Like, right. make just something loop for 10 hours. Yeah, they have 10 hours of Final Fantasy fanfare. There you go. Real quickly, the book club, The Cubs Way, The Zen of Building the Best Team in Baseball and Breaking the Curse by Tom Verducci. Uh, I'm just about finished. It was a bear, a little bit. Um, I reached out to Mr. Verducci this week. Didn't hear back. It's not unusual. We'll track him down. Might take another email or two, but he'll be on. He's the kind of guy that you email him, and he ignores you when he can't come on, <laughs> and then you email him again, and if he can come on, he emails you back. You never get like a no, very rarely a no from him, mm-hmm. unless it's really delayed. I've often got like a 13-day no. It's like, well, okay. not hearing from you is enough. You know, Thank you, though. Uh, but we'll get Mr. Verducci on soon. Interesting thing about the book club. I reached out to this author who had a book, and it's on Triumph Books. So, I mean, it's not in the new, the, the bestseller you know, thing. And I was DMing with him on Twitter. I just felt so blown off. I, I missed that. You reached out to him or he reached yeah, out to you? Yeah, I reached you? out to oh, him. Oh, okay. And he just like, kind of blew me off, and it's like, look, I don't need to promote your book. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It just annoyed, the f- annoyed me this week. I don't know. But anyway, the Cubs way, the sign of building, the best team in baseball, and breaking the curse. Email me, thesportscasters at gmail.com uh, if there's somewhere you think we should go next. All right, speaking of baseball, let's talk about it more. Let's take a break and come back with Ben Lindbergh from The Ringer. It's been so long since last we met. Lie down forever, lie down. Or have you any money to bet? Lie down forever, lie down. Yeah. There goes old George Town. Straight for a touchdown. See how they gain ground. Lie down forever, lie down. Lie down forever, lie down. My next guest is in New York, New York, and writes about baseball. He's done so for Baseball Prospectus, Grantland, and now Ringer.com. He's making his first appearance on the Sportscasters today. A warm welcome to Ben Lindbergh. Ben, if you were a rookie on a baseball team and they made you stand up and sing your alma mater's fight song, would you have known all those words? I definitely would not have. I am uh, not really a school spirit guy so much, although I certainly enjoyed my time there, but it's been years, so that brings me back. That's usually a lot cooler when it's a band version. You know, yeah. you know mm-hmm. people get pumped up, but the quick time I had to do a Google search, it was all acapella versions, so <laughs> I don't know. Thanks for being on today. Yeah, my pleasure. How do you enjoy The Ringer? You're a Grantland guy, too, so how do you enjoy Ringer compared to Grantland? It's very similar for me. You know, I'm working with the same editor at the Ringer that I was at Grantland, Mallory Rubin. She's great, and I think the ethos of the site is similar in that they kind of let people pursue their passions, follow their interests. So I was hired as a baseball guy at Grantland, and then they let me branch out and do all sorts of things, and that's been the case at, at The Ringer, too. I do a video game podcast now. I write about TV, write about movies. So it's uh, it's nice that the editors have that kind of faith in their staff, and that sort of that sort of philosophy is why I wanted to sign up for another tour of duty on the, the Bill Simmons ship. Yeah, we, 
like I told you in email, we've been close with a lot of Grantland writers and, and now with Ringer writers as well. Brian Curtis has always been a great ambassador for us. And uh, one of the cool things about it, I think, is, you know, first Grantland, how broad that was. And Ringer even feels broader. You know, yeah. certainly pol- yeah, it is. politics is Obviously, something there's like, a, a tech component to the site. There's been some political coverage. Yeah. There's... It almost feels like there's nothing that you can't turn into a, a ringer article if you have the right pitch. So I want to get to baseball, but real quick, you said you've you've written about TV a little bit. What what are you watching right now? What are your shows? Give me a couple. Oh, uh, you know the usual, uh, I guess, prestige pantheon, right? The the HBO Sunday night comedies, Veep in Silicon Valley, or uh, you know The Handmaid's Tale, or Better Better Call Saul. Uh, the Americans, all the usuals. I don't yeah. know if I have any really overlooked gems to recommend right now. I just discovered the Americans last year, mm-hmm. so I caught up, and this is my first season watching, you know, week to week. And uh, I know people have been down on the season, but I don't know. I just enjoy being in that world. I haven't been disappointed at all. Do you watch Fargo? Yep. I do watch Fargo also. I, I haven't been quite as sold as on, on the beginning of this season Me as neither. on yeah. the last season, which was maybe one of my favorite TV seasons of all time. I really enjoyed that. Even so, when the spaceship uh, showed up? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That didn't right. ruin it for yeah, you? So. S- sorry? That didn't ruin it for you? They have this incredible uh, drama, this amazing story, and then all of a sudden at the end a spaceship shows up, and that's supposed to be the explanation. <laughs> Like that I actually kind of liked that. It was uh, yeah. strange and absurd in a way that you don't typically see on uh, more serious scripted TV. I like that there was that strange, unexplained element. I I wouldn't want that to be part of every show, but I <laughs> it was a, a very unusual wrinkle that, in its uniqueness, I think I enjoyed. Are you a Wire guy or a Sopranos guy? More of a Wire guy than a Sopranos guy. Yeah, I just... I'm a huge, huge Sopranos guy and a huge, huge Wire guy, actually. And I had just watched Sopranos about three months ago. I watched it through again. And I said, okay, I have to watch The Wire through again now. And here's my dilemma with when I get to watch The Wire through again. I have a background in public school education. So Uh season four, despite its brilliance, is devastating. And every time I get through season three and I'm standing at the preface, prefaces of watching season four i say can i do this to myself again and the biggest problem is season five kind of stinks and it's like so so you get through season four and it's like all that's waiting for you is season five and it's like but i did i did push through this time and i have like four left in season five and i just watched the episode with the demise of omar yesterday and uh Uh And, uh, Are you glad you did it? I mean, I'm glad I rewatch a show just because it's so freaking brilliant, you know. And every mm-hmm. and it's so deep that even third or fourth time through, whatever this is for me, you pick up on stuff like right before Omar gets shot by Canard, he's walking through uh-huh. the alley and all these little kids run away, start screaming Omar, but Canard just right. stays there, just stays right where he is, never looks up, keeps playing in the dirt or whatever. You know, and I never mm-hmm. noticed before that he was one of those kids that was in that little group that started running in that alley. You know, yeah. I just noticed that for the first time for whatever reason, and it's, it had escaped me. 
Uh, maybe. I hope we're not spoiling the wire for anyone. Well, I guess if you haven't watched it yeah, by now. Time is up on that, I feel like. You know what I mean? The Wire <laughs> yeah. came out in 2002, I think, was the last season or something. Mm-hmm. So, But anyway, uh, brilliant. I mean, it's brilliant, you know. I mean, yeah. the, the way that then Omar passes away and they cut to the newsroom a few scenes later and they're like, oh, okay, we have no room for that homicide. It doesn't make the paper. Right. And it's just this, like, mm-hmm. devastating reality that Omar means nothing in the real, real world. You know, like, yeah. as fierce as he was in the streets of West Baltimore and his name rang out more than anyone's maybe on the show, it couldn't mm-hmm. even, his death didn't even make the paper. You're making me want to do my own rewatch. Yeah, oh, it's worth it. It's definitely worth it. <laughs> so much great stuff there. And, I, and I'm a guy who loves season two. I like the docs. I, I enjoyed it. I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it, you know, it's not as good as one, three, or four, but it's certainly better than five, I think. Anyway, yeah, uh, I agree. All right. With all that said, um, <laughs> I pitched you on a baseball interview, and I mm-hmm. read your piece on Ringer about home runs being up and the jo- the ball being juiced. And when I read the very first, when I first just looked at it from a mile away and said, "Oh, there's an article about the baseballs being juiced," first thing that came to my mind was last time I heard that, it ended up being that the players were juiced. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, that's uh, certainly in retrospect, you look back at that. Of course, I think if you dive back into that, I think there was more going on at that time in the so-called PED era than just PEDs. Certainly, the PEDs had an effect on the outliers, the guy who were guys who were hitting more home runs in a season than anyone ever had before. I think you can draw a clear connection there. I, I think there were other things going on also with the expansion and strike zone size and ballpark size and all sorts of things that can't necessarily be tied directly to PEDs. But I think the thing that sets this wave of home runs apart from that one is that this one happened very suddenly, right? And so if you look back at the PED era, if you look at the 90s, the early 2000s, that was sort of a gradual increase. You know, home runs started spiking up in the early 90s, mid-90s, and then they reached their peak in the late 90s, early 2000s, and then they tailed off again. And it is a little more organic, a little more natural, where you could point to, if you want to, pin it all on, on steroids, which I, I think would be some something of a simplification. But if you did, you could say, okay, so it was gradually going up, and these things were going into the game and then maybe being phased out of the game. Whereas this time, right now, we have a record home run rate, so home runs are being hit more often now than they were in 1999, in 2000, any of those years, and it happened very suddenly. So right in the middle of 2015, and up to that point, people had been talking about a return to the low-scoring era. 2014 had the lowest scoring rate since, I think, 1976, so people were talking about, is Major League Baseball going to have to do something to increase scoring? And then, lo and behold, right in the middle of 2015, not even over an off-season, but right after the All-Star break, home runs just skyrocketed. All of a sudden, everyone was hitting home runs. And so that is the thing that I think has made everyone somewhat suspicious. That's the quandary. It's not just that a lot of home runs are being hit, but that it it started so suddenly. I can understand as a player and as a fan why we wouldn't want the players to be juiced. You know, it's uh it's a bad look for young kid you know, young kids start making that decision. It has a negative effect on the body. Uh players are forced 
at the major league or minor league level to make a bad decision, you know, to keep up with the Joneses, so to speak. But why would we ever really care if the balls were juiced? I mean, everyone hits the same ball, right? So why would that right. matter to us? Yeah, you can certainly make a case that we shouldn't care and that Major League Baseball should just come out and say if they do decide to do something, if they have done something, then they could just say we decided to do something. And you're right, it's still a level playing field. I think it probably has to do something with the value of tradition and consistency in baseball where the history is so long that you kind of want to preserve this fiction that the game of today is more or less the same game that Joe DiMaggio was playing, you know, and you have people, fathers and grandfathers passing on stories and you kind of like this idea that it's more or less the same game and, hey, the bases are still 90 feet apart and all of that. Of course, there have been a lot of changes. Baseball is constantly changing, but I think for MLB to come out and and admit to meddling in that way. And, and of course, they have in other ways, right? The strike zone specifications change, and rules have changed constantly throughout Major League Baseball. And so it wouldn't be that unusual. But I think if they announced that the ball was different and then suddenly everyone noticed that lots of home runs were being hit, maybe it would, I don't know, make the sport seem artificial almost, as if it were too influenced by a a change in the equipment as opposed to the players. If you decided that you didn't like the high home run style of baseball, then you'd have someone to blame. You could say, hey, baseball meddled with this game that I grew up loving and I loved it a certain way and now it's a different way because of a decision Commissioner Rob Manfred meant. And so you could sort of scapegoat them in a way, whereas if the changes are made without any announcement, then I don't know that anyone even notices or minds. You know, I certainly have been paying close attention to this, and so have other people who follow the game in the way that I do. But if you just parachuted into a typical game today, I'm not sure you would know that it was dramatically different from a game 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago. It would take some time to figure out that the sport was different. But you could certainly make the case that home runs are the only thing saving baseball right now from that low-scoring era that everyone was fearing a few years ago because strikeouts, of course, are at an all-time high also, and that was part of the reason why scoring was down a few years ago, and that has only accelerated and continued since then. And so it's really these home runs that are propping up the run scoring rates. And if suddenly we went back to the home run rate of a few years ago, we would be seeing scores that maybe we haven't seen since 1968 or something. And if you think that offense and home runs bring fans to the ballpark to a certain extent, then that would potentially be a problem. Yeah, and you talk about changes in baseball. I mean, nobody gets bent out of shape if, you know, the Braves build a new stadium. They did this year. I don't know a lot about it yet, but maybe that's a easy place to hit home runs. You know, obviously the Padres built one a while back. That's a hard place to hit home runs. Um, but I mean, it's up to the discretion. It's not like hockey where, you know, if you build a new arena, you better have a 200 foot rink in there, you know, to play Mm -hmm. hockey on with baseball. Nobody's checking up to see what the, where the foul pole is in the right field, you know, and if it's Mm -hmm. 300 and whatever feet down the line and it turns out to be an easy place to hit home runs, nobody seems to care about that. Yeah, which I like a lot. And if you look over the course of baseball history, ballpark dimensions, at least field dimensions, have gotten more uniform and there are fewer outliers. But 
they still exist and there is no uniform playing surface and no set dimensions that you have to have. And I think that's great. Well, I, think I think it's it, great too. Yeah, I think yeah. it enables a, a level of strategy that you don't get in other sports where you're not talking about so much whether a player's skills are suited to that particular court or that particular rink. And in baseball, you do that. You can factor that into your team building and say, you know, this guy is a, a good slap hitter. He, you know, he, we put him in a ballpark with a big outfield and he'll just slap a bunch of singles or this guy hits lots of balls 330 feet down the line. If we put him in this ballpark, he'll be more valuable than in that ballpark. And it gives you something to discuss about players, another level of analysis that you can do as a fan or as a writer. So I love that quirk of baseball, but you're right. It can influence things if there's a wave of ballparks that come into the game at roughly the same time and they all happen to be big or they happen to be small then that can affect things on a league-wide level right you know you mentioned in the article about players getting bigger stronger faster and that's an issue for every sport uh Mm -hmm. you know watch an nhl game now compared to 20 years ago and man, those ten players that are on the rink are taking up a lot more space than the ten players that were on the rink right. twenty years ago did. And mm-hmm. I was thinking about it in terms of baseball. And what about ten years ago? Now the bigger, stronger, faster players had to take a step back to how they were becoming mm-hmm. bigger, stronger, and faster uh, with yeah. with the testing. And it seems entirely possible to me uh, with you know not only is like I, everything improves, right? Everything gets training is improved. The way you train, mm-hmm. uh, the staffs, teams that have staffs of trainers, you know that. Like even people in regular life, CrossFit people, you know, I mean, people are getting stronger everywhere, not just baseball. Um, and it mm-hmm. doesn't mean steroids. So is it maybe just that we've found we've found that strength has caught back up? Yeah, I mean, I think that's certainly part of it. We know that pitchers are throwing harder than they have at any point during the years for which we have data, and I think it's a reasonable assumption that they were not throwing as hard in the years for which we don't have data. So pitchers are throwing harder than ever, and it only makes sense that hitters are swinging harder than ever. We we don't have a way to quantify that as well, but it certainly seems logical. And so... I think that is part of the the home run spike, and it's also partly a change in approach. So there's less of a strikeout stigma now. Guys are okay with not making contact because if you strike out, it often means that you hit for power, you're swinging hard, so you're sacrificing some contact, but it pays off because you're hitting for power. Maybe you're more patient, you're taking pitches, and if you do that, you will strike out sometimes too. But it all kind of uh, balances out for an individual hitter, but on a league-wide level, we're seeing more and more strikeouts, and that probably has something to do with the approach. And then we see the impact of data, too, and analytics, and we now have launch angles for every batted ball. And so uh, a player or a team can look at whether a player is hitting the ball in an optimal way, and if he's not hitting it high enough, then they can tinker with his swing to get more loft, more of an uppercut, and that's a trend that we've seen. So I think it's a lot of things coming together. But I think the only reason that there's been such intrigue surrounding this is that 
all of those things evidently came together all at once overnight, which is right. sort of hard to swallow, you know, because most right. trends in baseball kind of happen gradually. If you look at the increase in strikeouts that's been going on for decades, more than a century, really, or game time and pace of game that's been slowing down for years, or infield shifts even, which has been relatively rapid, the rise of non-standard defensive alignments, but it's still taken a decade or so for things to get to the point where they are today. And that just wasn't the case with home runs. It, it seemed to be that evidently everyone started making this change at exactly the same time, which is why it's so confounding. Are there certain players that make you raise your eyebrows more and certain players that make sense, you know, that, that don't mm-hmm. draw as much suspicion for you? Well, what we have seen is that there's been sort of this flattening in home run totals. So although we're seeing record home run rates on a league-wide level, we're not seeing individual home run records being broken. You know, no one is challenging Bonds or McGuire or or Maris, for that matter. Guys are hitting, you know, 40-something home runs is leading the league right now, which is not at all unusual. It's just the fact that so many guys are hitting 30-something, so many guys are hitting 20-something, it's really hard to find anyone who doesn't have some power now by the standards of an earlier era. And I think that is consistent with the idea that there's something happening with the ball, right? Because what we've seen is that kind of the lower classes and the middle classes of home runs have benefited more. So if you're someone like Giancarlo Stanton, who, you know, hits the ball harder and farther than anyone, well, you're probably clearing the fence by a lot anyway on your home runs, right? So you are not maybe getting as much of a benefit if the ball is traveling a little bit farther. Whereas if you're a guy who has less power and maybe you're flying out to the warning track a whole bunch, then if you add 10, 15 feet to the typical balls, then suddenly a lot of those balls are going over the fence. So that's something we've seen, that kind of those middle or lower tiers of hitters have benefited more from this home run surge than other guys. And so, again, that was another thing that kind of raised eyebrows and made you think maybe there's something going on with the ball here, which, frankly, I was pretty convinced of until I saw the results from MLB that, I was writing about in this article, which don't support that. I'm still not 100% convinced that there's nothing going on there, but at this point you'd have to assume that if there is, either there is some kind of conspiracy where MLB is doctoring the data, which seems far-fetched, or or that they can't competently analyze it, which also seems somewhat unlikely. So that's where we are with it now. What do you attribute the resurgence of Ryan Zimmerman to? I mean, he he had such a bad year last year that it seems like it may have brought Bryce Harper down in a way. Uh, (laughs) And, I mean, he's practically like a triple crown winner right now. I mean, he's tied in home runs, Mm -hmm. but sitting 393, 34. Is this just a guy having a blazing hot start, or is this a guy that makes you a little suspicious? Or what what do you think about when you think about 393, 13 home runs, and 34 RBIs for Ryan Zimmerman in May. Yeah, right. You know, I'm not the type to sort of uh, point to any one player and say he's having a great year. He must be doing something that we wouldn't want him to be doing. I think, you know, there are all kinds of fluke seasons if you look back in the history of baseball, and they don't always have some smoking gun attached to them. I, I think 
there's been some talk about Zimmerman being one of those swing, swing changer types that I was talking about because he's teammates with Daniel Murphy, who is another one of these guys who has gone from being a pretty good hitter, a decent hitter, to one of the best hitters in baseball over the last couple of years. And with him, he is very explicit about that being a conscious change in approach. He looked at the data. He is trying to pull the ball. He is trying to hit the ball in the air more. And this was just a different approach from the one he had earlier in his career. And it seems to have turned him into a great hitter. And so there's been some talk about that approach rubbing off on Zimmerman. And Zimmerman's made some comments about learning from Murphy a little bit. I don't know how much that is supported by the data, because if he's He's not actually pulling the ball that much more than he used to. He's not actually hitting it in the air all that much more than he used to. I think part of it is just that maybe we forgot that Ryan Zimmerman was really good, right? He was a really good hitter in the past, and for the last couple of years, he's had injury issues. He's had shoulder problems. He's missed a lot of time, and that can really sap a player's power. If he is now fully healthy, then that's part of it. Of course, he was never this great, but I would chalk it up probably to him being healthy again, offensive levels being up all over the place, maybe some influence from Murphy, and just the fact that you know it's mid-May and this sort of thing can happen for six weeks or so. Right. Uh, I guess in the end, it's sort of like you kind of have to take you got to take Major League Baseball's word at this point. You got to look at a report. You couldn't release the results of it, but in the end, you concluded that the balls. There's no. There's no evidence in the report that you looked at to support anything out of the ordinary, and we have to take that at its word, like we took them at their word. I guess 20 years ago, or if it's been that long, I don't know about steroids. But I do feel, and I wonder if you feel this way too. If we did find out at a later date that it was the balls. Don't you think there would be a lot less outrage about that? Well, I think, in uh, you mean relative to steroids or players? Yeah, 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 exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, probably. I, I mean, I think the fact that if that turned out to be the case, that would mean that MLB was intentionally misleading all of us. So I think there might be some outrage about that. But, but yeah, I think a big part of the outrage about steroids was just that there was this uneven playing field and certain guys were getting the benefit and other guys who didn't want to risk it or wanted to adhere to some kind of code didn't do that and so they were at a disadvantage some guys careers were probably cut short or, or never happened as a result and so i think that is a a big source of the outrage about that and as you said earlier the ball is something that every player has to deal with, so I don't think there's as much of a competitive advantage or disadvantage for, for anyone there. So I think you're right about that, but you know, I, I don't know that we have to take their word for it. I mean, you, I think some skepticism is still warranted. Just consider the source. Obviously, it's coming from uh, the league itself, and they maybe have some incentives to make it look like nothing dramatic has changed either accidentally or because they are intentionally putting their thumb on the scale. So you can still retain some skepticism, but, you know, a year ago they were saying, well, we've done tests and nothing is different, but they weren't showing me the tests. They weren't showing anyone the tests, and it seems sort of suspicious. Why not show someone the tests if it says that there's nothing different? 
well, now they've shown me the tests, and the tests say there's nothing different, and an independent analyst who has looked at the results told me that there's nothing different. So I, I am less uh, convinced that something is different than I was before, but because the effect is so mystifying, I'm still wondering, I'm still <laughs> looking for an explanation that is completely convincing, and I haven't found it yet. couple of real quick ones, and I'll let you... Uh, go looking at the standings. Okay. Uh, I know this time of year, sometimes you can see a team really look like they're going to have a breakout year, but it turns out it's just that they were playing weaker teams at the beginning of their schedule or something like that. It's still, I guess, a smallish, smallish sample size. But when you look mm-hmm. around the league at the top teams, do any strike you as a team like when you look at Colorado 23 and 13 I didn't I guess expect them to be that good after 36 games is that a team mm-hmm. you think can hang in or is that a team that you think starts to fade like in June or July uh, uh and and not just Colorado but when you look at the standings in general you know have you mm-hmm. gotten a sense of who you think are pretenders or contenders yet yeah I I think you know, a lot of the teams that are winning are teams that were expected to win, right? I mean, like the, the, the Astros, right. the Nationals, right. those were teams that everyone thought these are some of the best teams in baseball, and they have been. Yeah, I mean, you know, at any any year you look at the standings in mid-May and there are going to be some strange results. I think the Rockies aren't the most surprising. I think there was a lot of sort of preseason buzz about them being a surprise team. You know, they have a lot of young pitching for maybe the first time in their history that is actually talented. And I think a lot of the things they're doing now make me think they are more real than, than, you know, some other team that's just a mirage. I mean, we've heard for years about how maybe a team should go get a bunch of ground ball pitchers in Coors Field because you put the ball in the air there and bad things happen in the thin air of Denver. And they are leading the league in ground ball rate. Now they get more ground balls than any other team. They throw more fastballs than any other team, and fastballs are less affected by the thin air of Colorado than some other pitch types. So I think there are some things they're doing there, and you know they're a, a better defensive team, it, it seems like, which is important in that big ballpark. So you know they're not quite as good as they've been so far. I think probably the Dodgers will end up catching them and winning that division, but I could certainly see the Rockies getting into the playoffs just via wild card, something like that. So... You know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if at the end of the year the standings look more or less like we thought they would as we speak right now. The Twins and the Indians are tied in the Central. That's not going to last. <laughs> the Indians are going to win that division. But, you know, I, I think that uh, for the most part, this there hasn't been a, a huge shock. Probably the, the biggest shock is the Orioles, right, who have one of the best records in baseball. They're in first place in the AL East as we speak, and they've they're a team that's just consistently defied preseason predictions and projections over the last several years. So normally looking at what they've done, I would say this isn't sustainable. They're going to decline at some point, but after the last five years or so of them consistently outperforming that sort of prediction, it's a little harder to have the same confidence. Do you get nervous when you see a team like them who's 13-3 and three at home and 9-8 and eight on, the, on the road when there's such a drastic split like that? Does that make you nervous at all? No, not really. I, I don't even pay that much attention to 
home road results over a full season and definitely over six weeks or so. I don't think there's that much meaning to it. You know, there are some teams, maybe you think about teams that play indoors or in domes or something like that. There seems to be some extra home field advantage to that, but I think a lot of that just tends to be random that, you know, looks like something and you can kind of turn it into a narrative about the team's character or something like that. But I think for the most part, there's uh, not all that much signal there. Are you worried about the Cubs at all? I think, you know, they they had this extraordinary defense last year, and that's kind of the aspect of their team that maybe isn't talked about as much as the young sluggers or John Wester or Kyle Hendricks, but their defense was incredible relative to the league. It was the best maybe ever, and they haven't had that this year. You know, their their defenders haven't been great. Their pitchers haven't been great at allowing weak contact, which seemed to be something that they could do last year. So worried, not exactly. You know, I think they'll end up winning the division. They'll make the playoffs. Uh, they haven't been terrible. But I think, you know, maybe what we saw them do last year on defense was something that they can't repeat, that no team could repeat, and we won't re- see them reach quite the same highs. But I think they're still, if not the best team in baseball, certainly, I don't know, second or third. All right, two last quick things, and I'll let you go. Uh, Atlanta, they talked about how much rebuilding was focused on being ready to compete when the ballpark is open. Ballpark is mm-hmm. open. They're 11 and 20. They have a negative 35 run differential. Um, they still seem terrible to me. Uh, but maybe the first year was a little ambitious in terms of the rebuild and when they would be competitive. When you look at the rebuild mm-hmm. in general, do you feel positive about what they're doing? in terms of progressing from being what they've been the last few years to what we've been used to them being the last few decades? Or do you think that they took a bunch of swings and maybe there was too many misses in there and this is going to be a much longer process than they thought? Yeah, it's kind of interesting because there's this perception now that if you do what the Braves did and what the Astros did before them and what the Cubs did before them and you tear everything down and you trade your old players and you just you know, accept that you're going to be terrible for a few years, that on the other side of that, you will be one of the best teams in baseball and you'll win a World Series, right? And I think maybe the Astros and the Cubs have spoiled us about how easy it is to do that and what the success rate would be. So I think now that more teams have adopted that strategy, we're going to see some of them not do it as well, and it just won't work out as well. And I think even if you look at, say, the Cubs, you know, they they made brilliant moves. They did an incredible job, but I think they even got lucky in certain ways, you know, when they like traded Bryant for Hendricks or traded for Arietta. I mean, I think they undervalued, they identified undervalued commodities there, but I don't think they would have said that these guys will be Cy Young Award winners or, or that kind of pitcher. I, I think right. they got fortunate to some extent. So when you see the Braves, who have kind of, I founded their rebuild on pitching to a certain extent, or certainly more so than the Cubs. The the Cubs' idea was we'll collect all of these young position players who are dependable and they don't get hurt so much, and that will be the great foundation for our team. The Braves have said, hey, historically we've had these great pitchers, Maddox, Glavin, Smoltz, we're a a pitching-first organization, so we'll build around pitching, and the success rate with pitchers is lower. So I don't know that we've seen enough to say this is definitely working out. I mean, I think the Braves are 
on an upward trajectory. They're they're going to get better, but I don't know that I've seen enough yet to say yes for sure. Look ahead two years, and this will be the best team in the league. So there's still a lot of uncertainty there, and I think the the plan to compete this year when the ballpark was open, I think that was always optimistic. You know, they they went out and they got some veterans like Cologne and, and Dickey and guys like that just to sort of eat innings and look more respectable than if they were just running a bunch of rookies out there. But they are not a good team. And you talked about needing some luck. I mean, a great example of that is the Cubs have the second pick one year. For some reason, Chris Bryant isn't the first pick, right? So you get to pick him. Sure. Pick mm-hmm. You know, so sometimes right. things like that happen. All right, very last thing, right. and I'll let you go. Um, let's see real quick. The com is where you can find Ben and his great work, uh, his articles there. He's also on Twitter, at Ben, L-I-N-D-B-E-R-G-H. It's Derek Jeter week, right? And uh, uh-huh. the cool thing about it to me, the coolest thing about it to me, is there's no more. It's impossible to play for the Yankees and have a single-digit number now. Uh, that, yeah. that ship has sailed. I, I think that's so cool for some reason. Uh, kind of a cool mm-hmm. quirk to me. I know that, you know, when we have baseball guests on, you kind of have to assess their level of how they look at the game based on a traditional or a modern way. You know, like if we have mm-hmm. Jonah Carry on, I know it's going to be a very modern, uh, statistical-based look at the game. If I have Josh mm-hmm. Passan, I know it's maybe somewhere in the middle. Uh, mm-hmm. And I know that you are uh, very much to that statistical side. So how does someone like you uh, judge the career of Derek Jeter on Derek Jeter week? Well, I, I think he was uh, a Hall of Fame player, a, a great player who maybe, you know, obviously he had something to do with it, but he was fortunate in the sense that he was playing for one of the best teams and dynasties ever, which gave him the opportunity to be in the playoffs every year and have these signature moments that someone else might not have. So, you know, his his legend was burnished, certainly, by being in New York when he was, but he was a great player, and he carried himself in a way that impressed everyone. And, you know, you nitpick and you talk about the defense, and no, he was not a good defender for a shortstop, but he was such a good hitter for a shortstop and so durable that he more than made up for it. So I think the fact that he's a controversial figure when it comes to analytical circles is sort of silly because no one's saying he's bad or even not that he's great. It's just I think there was kind of a reflexive recoil when anyone would say anything negative about Derek Jeter. And, you know, the people who were criticizing him weren't saying Derek Jeter's bad. They were saying he's not great at this one aspect of his game, which he makes up for in many other ways. So I think it's healthy to point out the flaws and to say no one's perfect or no one except Mike Trout is perfect, at least. (laughs) But uh, I think, you know, Jeter deserves to to be in the, the baseball pantheon, both for his performance and for his personality and, and the moments that he had, which, you know, I, I don't think you can say that he was solely responsible for the Yankees' success in those years, but he was as responsible as anyone else. So, uh, you know, as someone who grew up watching him in New York, I'll remember his career fondly, but, uh, you know, not necessarily put him on the same level performance-wise as 
the other Yankee greats at the the very top of that legacy. Right. So he's not exactly Lou Gehrig or Mickey Mantle. Right. But mm-hmm. maybe better than Reggie Jackson. Yeah. Oh, sure, certainly. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Just trying to figure out where he fits in, maybe in the pan. <laughs> uh, right. You know, you talked about opportunity. It's like I think about Dave Justice, who played in the playoffs every single year of his career, mm-hmm. which is kind of a cool thing. And it's like, well, he did. When I talk about Dave Justice's career, I think about he had a World Series winning home run, and he had a conference or not a conference, uh, an ALCS winning home run in two two thousand or two thousand one, whatever, against Seattle. And it's like, well, how do you do that? Well, you play in the playoffs every single year, and you're going to get a couple more opportunities, sure. right? So, yeah, but so Jeter, overrated, properly rated, or underrated? Um, probably overrated, I, I guess, but should be extremely highly rated. So, you know, we're talking about is he just a good Hall of Famer or is he, you know, one of the handful of best players ever? I don't think he's the latter, but he's certainly the former. So it's you know it's not like Jeter's a bum or something. It's right. just you know he had some flaws. He he wasn't the perfect player, um, but still completely deserving of of being a a baseball legend. Very good, thank you. I like that. Uh, that <laughs> seems good. Okay, I laid it out before the Ringer dot com. Of course, you can read Ben there. He's also got great archives of articles on the internet i mean stuff from baseball prospectus or old grantland stuff you can find just yeah. a ton of 538, stuff. 538 538 period yeah. there yeah tons mm-hmm. of stuff you can read uh, also i mentioned twitter at ben Lindbergh, uh, how it sounds and uh, anything else you want to plug no not really I, I do a few podcasts right so i do the ringer mlb show for the ringer i do achievement oriented which is the ringers video game podcast and I still do Effectively Wild, another baseball podcast for Fangraphs that I started at BP and has been continuing for years. So if you want to find me in audio form, there are many places to do that. Oh, and the book. You should mention the book. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I did do that, too. Because it's going to be Father's <laughs> um, yeah, Day. Yeah, the only rule is it has to work. Our our wild experiment building a new kind of baseball team is uh, another author and I went out to California and ran an independent league team a couple summers ago according to statistical principles and went out to see if it would work in real life. And it's Father's Day. Seems like a great time to buy those fathers who love baseball that book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure. Right. Thanks, Paperback ben. comes out later this month. Thanks for this, Ben. Look forward to maybe yeah, doing my pleasure. it again. All right. Have a good one. Thank you. Thank Ben Lindbergh and SL Price for being on the show today. Don't forget you can find this show and all of our shows on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash sportscasters. You can also tweet us at sports underscore casters or at Lake Sports and email us to sportscasters at gmail.com. Yesterday, a new episode of the Lonely End of the Ring podcast. You can find that on soundcloud.com slash lonelyrinkpod or at lonelyrinkpod. Adrian and I basically just recap the second round and talk about the conference finals. With that said, both podcasts can be found on iTunes and Stitcher and Google Play and all the places that podcasts are found. Podbean. If you can't find it, let us know. We'll, yeah. we'll hook it up. All right, one last thing for me this week. The Bills and Sabres hired uh, 
GMs, kind of a, like a day apart. Uh, and I, I like them both. Now, I'm, I'm easy to please. I always kind of see the positives in like a new change, but I kind of like the direction they went in. If you can accuse the Pagulas of anything, it's kind of of being fans, and I don't think either of these smack is fan-type moves. They're, this isn't hiring Pat LaFontaine. Uh, not that I didn't like that move, but didn't end well. This isn't saying Lindy Ruff ain't going nowhere. This isn't crying when you talk about the French Connection. And all those things are awesome as a fan. But as an owner, you don't necessarily need... This isn't hiring Ted Nolan, maybe, is a better example of that. Uh, these seem like hockey moves. And yes, Jason Botterill did play for the Sabres for, I don't know, if the over-under was 20 games. Did you take the over or under? I don't... It was, only it was short. Yeah. yeah, It's not about that. Right. Yeah. This is about a guy that was ready for the job. And from all accounts, I know national media is always kind of polite about this stuff and always says, always a good guy. Like they're not going to rip a guy that has never had this job. But uh, if you look at the fan reactions from it, a lot of the Pittsburgh fans' response on Twitter was, I'm happy for the guy, but I'm kind of bummed this guy was yeah. supposed to be our next guy. Right. It seems like so, they're bummed out to lose him. Right. And. The Bills guy I know much less about. Brandon Bean I don't know much about. He's got ties to McDermott. You know what else we don't know about him is how much control he has. Yes. I mean, there were articles that said he has control of the roster, uh, which is a weird thing to say because it's like their job. <laughs> what else would he do? Right. Yeah. But uh, at least it seemed, if anything, that Tim Murray – or not Tim Murray. Terry Pagula took a shot at Tim Murray, and maybe this was a similar problem in the Bills organization of – the general manager and like just not being on the same page. It seems like both teams are on the same page as far as their GM and coach go. Uh, I'm excited. They're young too, which is nice. They're both 40. So they're both 40, but they don't seem, I mean, I don't know. It just seems like a move that pleases everybody, but for the right reasons, not because it's, uh, they could have brought Chris Drury in here. It would have made a lot of people happy too. And I would have liked that move, I guess, but he's an assistant GM as well. Yes. Right. It's not totally crazy, but there is, there it's, not are, like, it's not like hiring uh, the Islanders, Grant Snow or something. Gar Snow? Gar, Gar Snow. Yeah. yeah. And it's not hiring. The one guy I didn't want to see was the Kings guy, Lombardi. Like, I didn't want to see an old, Just old a total school, retread, right? Hot, yeah. So this guy knew that seems like he's earned his chance, and uh, I'm excited. He's got a lot to – well, I think the hockey team's closer than the Bills, but uh, he's got to get in there quick because the draft is coming up. Yeah. So. We didn't win the lottery again. No, we did not. Surprised. What a what a. <laughs> at least it was. At least it wasn't the Flyers when all was said and done. But they still moved up and uh, moved from like thirteen to two. Yeah, I, I liked uh, what's his name Taylor Hall. His kind of response yeah, to it. He's, he's like, yeah, I'm really I'm a good luck charm when it comes yeah. to lotteries. Yeah. Good and by you. the way, in the last game, I'm not saying Larson was a bad trade or anything, but Edmonton could have used a little scoring. They traded away their best scoring piece other than McDavid. Well, Nugent Hopkins and Eberle had zero playoff they goals. They disappeared. That's so weird. Zero playoff goals combined for those two. Yep. Uh, one last thing for me. A little bit more personal, I guess. Nothing crazy, but a couple weekends ago, I played my first hockey game in seven years. Um, I don't know. There was a point in my life where probably a lot of people knew me as a hockey player, I guess. I was good at it. Never Anthony good, but good. I was second team all city my senior year of high school. And when high school ended and there was no more competitive ice hockey to play, I played a lot of competitive roller hockey mm-hmm. fairly well, I think. 
Um, and then, you know, I got sick and I got heavy and I got slower, but kind of redefined myself and managed to still play well, just different, a different kind of well. Mm-hmm. And then, I don't know, Anthony went to juniors and to college and Josh went where he went and hmm. um, Vinny. Vinny went where he, you know, overseas and yeah, we had know, a we young team and everyone kind of have team. We did spread out. Just wasn't there anymore, you know. And now uh-huh. seven years later, people are coming back, and we're not back to where we are. We don't have two teams yet, which we will. So hopefully, you're in training, so you can be on the other team <laughs> for next year. Uh, but we're just trying to get back and trying to reestablish what we had, which was a lot of trophies, and we want to get those trophies back. But it's going to take a little bit of time. Uh, but it felt good to play. I didn't. I wasn't sure if I would be able to. Seven years is a long way to be gone, and I've yeah. had a lot of trauma in my body since then. And I wasn't sure what was left of me. And I'm sure not – I'm not positive if I know yet, but I know it's enough to be out there at least. Um, I was watching the game before mine last week, and I was like, well, at least I'm not the worst player because I saw a guy who was definitely worse. Really? Yeah. So I'm Like me? Worse than you probably. Wow. Yeah, I mean, he was – what what is this like bracket? I know we used to play like in silver, but even silver was ridiculous because like half the t- well now silver is the top, okay, and bronze is second. Or maybe we were bronze and we're bronze, but even our bronze team like we had like three, like guys that at least had sniffs at the NHL. And we're, like we're bronze, but it's not the best bronze league. We're probably winning the league to be honest. Okay, but, um, well that's what I'd be interested in playing. But we bronze need, league, it's not the best bronze. League. But we need to rebuild. Sure, you know what I mean. And uh, we'll have to get you a game or two this year. You can come on a Saturday and sub because it's Saturday morning, so people I did hear are always missing here and there. You know, uh, but uh, I don't know. It just felt good to play. I guess. <laughs> Whoops, sorry. That's all right. That's all I really wanted to say. It felt good to play. Oh, do you think they'll drop the bomb? Mother, do you think they'll like this song? Mother, do you think they'll break my bones? Mm-hmm. Mother, should I build the wall? Mother, should I run for president? Should I trust the government? Mother, will they put me in the firing line? Mother, should I 
Do you think she's good enough? 